One of the greatest things we've ever done at SCUM is to have, uh, on a consistent basis, what I call story nights. And that is when people get up and they tell part of their spiritual story. It's just amazing, always. Normally we have, you know, three or four people in one night. We make it all just a big deal, you know, once every season or so. But uh, for this series on the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, I decided that maybe for a while and maybe for the whole thing, we will have a person every week tell their story. Uh, Deva, our... uh, illustrious founding worship leader, was was up for tonight. Uh, she hasn't given her story in like 13 years. Uh, and uh, But uh, she has uh, graciously stepped aside because uh, this weekend, and this weekend only, we have a former staff person here, and uh, we thought we'd let him get back up in front of the microphone and tell his story. So that's going to uh, introduce to you Joshua Dylan Peebles. Jo- Joshua, where are you? Yeah. Come on up, Josh. Mike, can you do me a favor? No, yeah, that's fine. Can you say the first epistle of the Apostle Peter five times fast? (laughs) I'm not going to try. It's going to be a lot of urinating in that attempt, probably. Oh, man. So, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Deva. Thanks for listening. Thanks for wanting to hear my story. As Mike said, it's always a small portion, right? I mean, you know, I'm about to turn 35 years old, and a lot has happened in my life. Um, So, I guess to tell the story, I'll start kind of towards the beginning. I am the child of non-Christian parents, um, and... They're wonderful people, and I love them so much, Uh, but my personality is kind of a product of the collision of their personalities, um, and it made for a perfectly neurotic child, actually. So um, I I can go back to my youth and say that very early, pretty much as soon as I knew that there was such a thing as death, it kept me up all night, like every night for like a decade. I mean, maybe not quite a decade, but many years, and the... The particulars of it, for me, it was never about my death. It was never really about the death of my friends for whatever reason, which would make sense as a child who depends so greatly on his also neurotic parents. But um, it was always their deaths. It was always that someday my parents are going to die. And as I said, I was raised in a non-Christian home, so I wasn't given a whole lot of solid answers to what that was about to what happened there. My parents, gracious, uh, but left a lot up to me. And and I didn't go running to them and be like, tell me about it, tell me about it, what's happening, what's happening. I don't know what they would have said necessarily, but I can tell you that for many years, this was of quintessential concern to me. And as I grew, it, it continued to be kind of an underlying thing in my life, but also in my own kind of over-processing and overthinking that, that's a theme. That's been a theme in my life. And as I moved forward into my teenage years and to moving into high school and so on and so forth, I continued to think a lot about who I was and what life was and what I wanted to be. And, you know, without any sort of guiding direction and also being a somewhat strange child, I have (laughs) told people before, maybe you'll get a kick out of this, that um, I... One of my quirkier things I did as a kid, if this gives you a little insight into what I was like, is I went through a phase where I narrated everything. Um, That made me lots of friends with the other kids when I was like, Justin walked onto the bus, his shoulders slightly slouched and slid past the first three rows, gazed over at me and sighed, you know. I couldn't tell quite what he was thinking, but I didn't think it was good. You know, I mean, Justin loved me. 
But at some point in time, I decided that I didn't want to just be the quirky, geeky kid. And so as I continued to process and think and, and put things away, I, dis- I decided, boy, what, what is going to set me apart? And I'm so tired of these expectations that people have of what I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be like, who I'm supposed to do. And so I decided that I was just going to take small town Ohio, which is where I grew up. I was going to take everything that they said was the way that I should be and the way that I should act and the way that I should think and the things that I should believe. And I was just going to do the opposite, basically. It was as ultimate of a rebellion as I could make. You know, I just, if it was cool, I was doing the opposite. If it was what other people were doing, I didn't want to do it. And so, of course, in that environment, uh, Christianity definitely fell in there. And so I, in kind of the, the creation of this persona, I would say, that I was grasping for identity and, and some sort of uh, grounding, uh, you know, I took that and I said, I'm, I'm going to reject this out of hand. All, all those people uh, who in high school and in middle school treated me like a weirdo or whatever, they're all Christians, they all go to church. I don't want anything to do with that. And so I, I kind of became that sort of person where, you know, I, I just automatically was cynical and I didn't have any hope. I hadn't solved my childhood conundrum of death. Um, but I found some place to kind of stake my claim. And ironically, um, as I said, it's always part of the story. It was many years after that, in the midst of my uh, continuing to be that sort of person that I was at a funeral um, for someone who I really respected, someone I really appreciate. Her name was Lindsay Reese. And uh, she was someone who I worked with and just had wonderful conversations with. And she died. I was at her funeral. Her and three other friends died in a car accident on Thanksgiving of 1997. And it was terribly traumatic for many, many people. And at this funeral, there were I don't know, 400, 500 people because all of the friends of three young women were there. And at the funeral, they decided, because these girls were Christians, that they wanted to do an altar call. They wanted to do a gospel presentation. They wanted to tell people about Jesus, and they wanted to do an altar call. Um, the, the problem was that they just kind of skipped over these girls and their lives and the things they cared about and their memories and their history and who they were. And they went straight to, hey, these girls were great. They believed in Jesus. That gives us hope. Let's talk about Jesus for a half an hour. And then, um, you know, we'll go from there. And so, uh, you know, 10 minutes, I'm kind of putting up with it. You know, and remember, I've kind of tried to paint a picture of who I was at this point in time. 10 minutes, I'm putting up with it. 11 minutes, I'm putting up with it. 12 minutes, I'm going, looking at people around me. You know, by 20 minutes, I am grumbling constantly under my breath to everyone around me about, okay, I get it. Okay, Jesus, great, great. Okay, I can respect that a little bit. These girls believe that. But come on, can we talk about their lives a little bit? Can we give some sort of honor to them? I mean, they're 17 years old. They died. You know, I'm just like, and then, you know, 30, however many minutes into this. And I mean, I think the gospel's simpler than that. But in any case... They finally do the altar call, and the funniest thing happens. God is like, yeah, so you know how this is happening? And you know how it's kind of this collision of things. How your concern with life and death, how your rebellion, how your appreciation of these people, how, yeah, okay, now this is what you're going to do. It was, it was, I I mean, I imagine he was, I don't know, maybe not chuckling, but I kind of hope so. Like, ha, 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 yeah, come on down to the floor where somebody's going to pray for you with like 30 other kids or something like that. And so I did, I did. God, uh, you know, obviously had worked through this situation and worked through this woman in spite of me, this young woman, and worked through other people in my life and softened me up. And I did. I went to that floor and I said that I'd accept Jesus. And, um, and that was my conversion experience, if you've got to define it in a kind of a singular sense. Like that was the time where I decided I'm going to go from not following God to following God. But the thing is, is it's not that simple. Um, That was 18 years ago, whatever, a lot of years ago. 
And a lot has happened. Life didn't quit. Life didn't get easy or simple. Didn't stop being confusing. Um, I'm sure many of you can identify with the fact that things just are really hard sometimes. You know, I've had really difficult things happen to me. And those, those answers that I was seeking out, those things that I wanted, that, that alignment of life in my neuroses, in, in fact, that I think that I kind of projected onto God, like, okay, now my neuroses is going to find a grid and a framework and it's going to make sense, right? It's all going to, you know, kind of everything's going to have its, it's, it's going to be neat and clean. It's not, and it hasn't been neat and clean. And it hasn't all been like, well, just be good and it'll all be good. I mean, is anybody's experience like that? If so, I don't know. I hate you. Um. (laughs) Hard things have happened. Um, You know, I I was married. I've been divorced. Um, I've uh, gone through relational disappointments of other types. I've gone through career disappointments. Um, I've, I've gone through personal disappointments, just me not liking myself. I mean, ask Ben Mercer's mom if you ever meet her. I, I confided in her one time how self-loathing I was. She's really nice. Your mom's a great lady. She's really nice. It's been hard. It's been a challenge. And I'll tell you, um, the thing about it is, is I guess what I just want to convey and the thing that I'm continuing to work through is that, you know, there's been this dissonance at times in my image of God. You know, as I said, I kind of set up this framework and this grid of who he was. And so often it's like experience. Like like I said, that was my conversion experience where I turned towards God. But so often I feel like I'm just being converted again. And it's like, oh, yeah, all that stuff that you assumed was what God was like. Maybe none of that's true. I mean, some of it is, but so much of it, so many changes, so many curves, so many just dissonance. And sometimes I can wrap my head around it, and sometimes I just have to wait on him to help me figure it out and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It hasn't always been neat and clean, and sometimes I've been disappointed in myself, and other times I was talking to Jesse Heilman the other day. I just go, you know what? I don't know everything about how I feel about God's role in this or that, how God's role in the fact that my dad just died, that ultimate fear that I had as a child. My father died two months ago, and I've never had to experience death or deal with it in that way. And my father died terribly, and it was painful, and he was not ready to die, and he was not, as far as I know, in any sort of relationship with God. And there's dissonance there in my worldview and what I think and having to sort through things. But the thing is, I told Jesse, I'm not worried. I don't know everything. I haven't worked everything out. There's times where I can feel like I'm drawing close to God and other times where I feel like I just don't even know what to make of him. And I'm going to keep moving towards him and keep trying to put myself in a position to be converted again and put one foot in front of the other and trust that I don't need to be worried uh, that he's got me, and I don't know what that's going to look like, and I don't know if it's going to look anything like I thought it was going to look when I was 17 years old or 18 years old or 19 years old or 25 years old or even 33 years old. But he's good, and that's what I'm trusting, that it isn't easy, it isn't always happy, it isn't always simple, but it's good, and ultimately it will be good. And that's what I've got to place my stake in, and that's kind of my story. As of now, ask me again in six months. Thanks. Thank you, Joshua. So we've been going through this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians And he starts this letter in a way you probably wouldn't expect. And honestly, I would say when you read the Bible on your own, you probably don't read it the way you ought to read it. And so I'm going to read it with the emotion that I think the Apostle Peter was feeling. All right? 
So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, and it'll be up there on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is excited about this. This is not a dry lecture. He could have said it this way. My lecture topic today is regeneration. I have several related doctrines upon which I wish to discourse. Let us give close attention to these things. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. Worship happens... At least, this is one of the ways that it happens. When your mind apprehends a great truth about God, and then your heart kicks in with these deep feelings of brokenness, or of wonder, gladness, admiration, reverence, gratitude, and then the mouth says something like, Blessed be God! Oh, blessed and be praised and honored and glorified. Oh, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are overwhelmed with this great salvation that He has so graciously poured out, upon your sorry life. John Piper doesn't seem like that kind of guy, but I want to tell you, I get that whole idea from John Piper. He's really, really good when it comes to the opening of 1 Peter. He gets election. That's a seminary he understands what it means to be chosen by God. And he is excited about it. And he gets it in this one. So I want to say right off the bat that I'm really grateful for John Piper's work in the first letter of the Apostle Peter. But let's uh, go through this passage here. I'm going to start in verse 3. In his great mercy... In his great mercy. Mercy is the explosion that starts this chain reaction of praise the Apostle Peter goes into. Scott McKnight says that mercy is that pity that God shows humans in spite of their sin and because of their total helplessness to right their own wrongs. God permits them to be part of the special people of his favor. It is by the mercy of God that we are saved. Mercy is not one of those spiritual gifts that people really seek, but they ought to. I think it's one of those fundamental virtues of God. When I think of mercy, honestly, I think of my wife, Mary Sayers. If you know Mary Sayers, you know mercy. My wife has never met a stranger. People are drawn to her like, like bees to flowers. 
because when they're around her, they get just this outpouring of concern, of respect, of, of love that they really can't define. All we know is every one of our kids' friends loved Mary. I mean, when your kids' friends love the parent, I mean, that really says something. They didn't say that about me. <laughs> but they loved, oh, I just love your mom. She's just so... And then they would go on with some kind of adjective that would describe. If you have a friend like that, you know what I'm talking about. And you've been drawn in by that same gift of mercy. Here's what I want to ask you. If you're drawn in by a friend of yours who has that gift of mercy, how much more could you be drawn in by the mercy of God for you whom he's created if you encounter it in its truest, most altruistic form? I'm infatuated with God's mercy. If you write to me emails at all over the last many years, you will know that sometimes I sign off on my emails by fantastic mercy, Mike Sayers. When I was a little kid growing up in the Greek Orthodox Church, we said Kitty Eleison all the time, which means Lord have mercy. I thought it was stupid. Even after I became a Christian, I go, He's given us grace. Why ask for mercy? Grace is so much better. Grace is like getting a present you didn't deserve. Mercy is just not getting the punishment that you do deserve. Well, as I've gotten older, and I've watched myself screw my life up over and over again, my continual prayer has been, Lord, have mercy on me, please. I'm such an idiot. Please do not make me, my wife, my children, or my church suffer the consequences of my lame waddedness. The second thing in the list is the new birth. That God has given us the new birth. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do you know that you were born physically? If I came up to you and I said, Okay, so how do you know that you came out of your mother's womb? I think the most obvious answer would be something like this. this. Um, because I'm alive? Because I'm here? Because I'm living, walking, talking, breathing, thinking, doing? And that would be the best answer, honestly. It would be the best answer. A not-so-good answer would be, I know that I was born because at home in a file cabinet, I have a birth certificate. Or you could say, I've done some research. I've gone to the source. If you go to Toledo, Ohio, you go to the Toledo Hospital Records, you will see a piece of paper with a small child's footprint on it. And if you look at those squiggly lines in the bottom of that foot and match them to my foot, you will see that it is I. I was born. Or I went around and collected affidavits from several people who saw my mother pregnant and then saw me in her arms. Written testimony accepted by the court. See, I was born. See, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. But Christians do that all the time. When you ask a Christian in the USA in the year 2013, how do you know that you were born spiritually? Very often, what you will get is, when I was a child, I went to vacation Bible school. And they gave me this certificate that says, I accepted Jesus on this day at this time and then had milk and cookies. I mean, 
Or people will say that I went down to the stage at a Billy Graham rally and accepted Jesus Christ into my heart there. How many of us would rather hear somebody say, I know that I'm born again because I'm alive spiritually. Like, I didn't used to talk to God, and now not only do I talk to God, I hear from God, sometimes not audibly, but like in the depths of my being, in my soul, I get these impressions. I I see things that I didn't see before. I have a spiritual antenna. I, I, I walk into a room and I, and I sense things that I never sensed before. I hear the Father whispering to me to go over and talk to someone who looks forlorn. Or I have these premonitions sometimes not to do a certain thing. My conscience is a lot louder now that I've been born again than it was before I was born again. Before I was born again, I could do anything. I was a really, really good sinner. Now, I'm still a pretty good sinner, but I feel bad about it. Because there's this conscience thing that is always talking to me and urging me to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. It's not surprising that in the U.S. we've had a kind of Christianity that has grown up around this kind of self-catalyzed spirituality. I mean, when it's all about you, I did this to become saved, I did that to become saved, really there isn't much room to praise God for that. But when you say, I was, I don't even, I was born again. Like I had nothing to do with it except, I guess I cooperated, I don't know. But God be praised I'm different than I used to be. That is, to me, proof of the new birth. It really is. You got something going on in here with Jesus. You frankly believe Jesus is still alive. You can't see him. You can't touch him. But you know in your knower that he's alive. And you can explode in praise. Another reason to praise his name because of the new birth. I once was blind and now I see. It really is amazing grace. The next thing that the Apostle Peter talks about is that we have a living hope. And he says it's because of the resurrection that we have this living hope. Even though tragedy may tempt us to succumb to belief in utter futility, believers know that life has ultimate purpose. Joshua alluded to this. I'm sure that your life has plenty of instances where terrible things happen and you could not figure out how God could be present in any of it. But this hope that somehow it'll all be all right, that God really does work things out For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he works those things out for the goal. Good. Somewhere inside of you, you couldn't quite kill that hope. Even if you wanted to. I mean, everybody clings to some kind of hope, right? Christians cling to a hope in Jesus. A living hope that there's life beyond the grave. 
But other people put hope in things that are only fleeting. They put hope in their money. You know these people. I mean, I'm getting to the age where people are going, yeah, yeah. Got the retirement, 401ks in pretty good shape. Got some investments, a little Social Security on the side. Don't really need it, but it's going to come in handy, you know, for spending money. I got people who are putting all kinds of hope into money. Some people are putting hope in fame. I mean, they're trying to be rock stars because they figure once they get famous, doors will open for them. So, man, if I can only get famous, then... Life's going to be great. We've seen too many, you know, behind-the-scenes stories on MTV to know that's true, right? But people believe that. People put faith and their hope and power. Saddam Hussein, I think, was one of those people who put a lot of hope in his power. It didn't do him a lot of good in the end. Yet to hope in such things really is to be hopeless. Because such things come to an end. Ours is a living hope. Because its foundation is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2,000 years ago, a man got up out of the grave and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe it. We have a living hope. John Calvin, who was an early church reformer, says this. He says that First Peter begins with a description of our indestructible hope so that we may enjoy the invaluable treasure of a future life and also that we may not be broken down by present troubles but patiently endure them, being satisfied with eternal happiness. Our living hope allows us to stand firm in present troubles, knowing that our ultimate ultimate reward is not to be found in this world. And the Apostle Peter is writing from personal experience here. He's saying, really, behind all this, look, I saw the man tortured and die. And I ran to the tomb looking for a dead body, but there was none there. And then I saw him, and I ate with him, and I talked with him afterwards. He is risen from the dead. He made breakfast for me on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after he had risen from the dead. Peter knows what he's talking about. He has a hope. He could go to his own crucifixion Upside down, because he knew there was a living hope on the other side. The next thing that Peter talks about is our inheritance in heaven. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. That's the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians. Pulling from Isaiah, the prophet, and saying it's fulfilled in Jesus. We have an inheritance in heaven. And, you know, I know it's not popular right now to talk about heaven. You know, that whole pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by business. You Christians are so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Well, let me say, let us not throw out the concept of our inheritance in heaven, because it's a really good one. It's a really good one. I mean, I'm not a big fan of this book, but it's caused a stir in people's hearts. It's called Heaven is for Real. It's about this little boy who dies, and he starts talking to his mom and dad, uh, and he starts saying things about what he saw while he was technically dead in the hospital, and they revived him. And I'm not saying the kid is lying, but I'm saying it's causing a stir because I think people are hungry for a notion of heaven. 
that this life is not all there is. Heaven is our inheritance, you know? It's, you know what an inheritance is, right? It's when, when, let's say, your mom and your dad die, and they leave you something, something good. It can be money, it can be stuff. I mean, inheritances are treasured and valued by the brothers and sisters who were left. I mean, I, I actually know two guys who got into a literal fist fight at the lawyer's office over the family inheritance in front of the lawyers. Inheritances are a big deal. In each case, an inheritance, doesn't matter if it's earthly or whether it's spiritual, is something we did not earn. And Peter tells us, when we put our trust in the resurrected Jesus, we are transformed and given an inheritance that is superior to anything we could get on earth. It doesn't do anything except increase in value. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is nothing that can be newer or better than heaven for us. We have a treasure waiting for us. It's life beyond the grave. It's life in a perfect place, get this, with perfected people. Because honestly, when I think about heaven, and I think about some of the people I may have to spend it with, you know, that I see on television, on those high-numbered channels, I... Going, really? Am I going to enjoy that? But here's the promise. Not only is it a perfect place, but it's perfected saints. I will like Benny Hinn in heaven. That blows me away. (laughs) He'll be awesome, as will I. (laughs) All right. The next thing that uh, Peter talks about is being shielded by God's power. Shielded by God's power. Now, here's the good news. is God does not just stand back after you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, fold his arms and go, okay, let's see how this works. No, no, he is going to shield you. He is going to protect you along the way. And so, like, what kind of things does God shield us from? Now, You know, death, you think, may be one of them, but actually it's not. Because death actually brings you closer to your inheritance in heaven, right? So, what is it that we're being shielded from? Well, the Bible talks about Satan, our enemy, who prowls around the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour, the scripture says. He's a problem for us. We need protection from him. And we need protection from certain temptations, right, that that will come upon us because there's some things we just can't handle. So we're told by Jesus when he teaches us to pray that when you pray, I want you to pray that deliver us from evil, right? Keep us out of temptation. We need that. We need that. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there's no temptation that's going to overtake us that isn't common to men and women, and that he will give us power to overcome anything that comes our way. So you know if there's a temptation coming your way, that God's provided you at least a way of escape, you can skate out the back door and not sleep with the girl. Or not sleep with the guy. Or not shoot the dope. Or not 
burst out in anger and say things that are hurtful. Or not cower and leave never doing the right thing. That those temptations are common and God will not let us go beyond what we can endure. What do these things have in common? What is he shielding us from? That is, what in the end is the only thing that can keep us from this salvation that's ready to be revealed at the end? I want to say that it's the killing of our faith. That what we're being promised, the shielding by God's power, is that our faith, which is of greater worth than gold, will not be crushed, never to rise again. Why would this be so important to God? Well, because faith is what gets you in to a relationship with him. It's what gets you all the stuff we've been talking about, including heaven. Your faith is really, really important to God. He does not want it to be snuffed out. And if anybody understands this, it is the Apostle Peter. On the night that Jesus was crucified, Peter was asked three different times if he knew Jesus. Three different times Peter said, uh-uh, don't know the man. Don't know the man. Earlier that night, Jesus tells Peter a secret. It's up there on the overhead. He says, Simon, that's his name before Jesus named him Peter the Rock. Kind of appropriate, he doesn't use the word Peter the Rock in this particular prophecy because Peter is going to be anything but a rock that night. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, Satan wants to strain out every last ounce of faith in your soul. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail utterly. That's why Peter wept bitterly that night, the Bible says. And that's why he returned from his sin. But whom was Jesus praying to? He was praying to God, his Father. And what did he ask God to do? To not let Peter's faith come to an end. So who was responsible for Peter's faith somehow making it through that night? God. Yet another reason for Peter to praise his name. Because he knows he didn't do it on his own. Maybe you're in a place where you're not even sure if you have faith anymore. But let me point this little interesting fact out. You're here at a worship service listening to a sermon. Maybe your faith isn't as dead as you think it is. Or maybe there's someone you love a lot. And it looks to you like they have just forgotten the Lord. 
And they're going their own way. And you're thinking, it's over. Here's the truth. You don't know the end of the story. You're only in the middle of the book. Perhaps Jesus has prayed a high priestly prayer in heaven for your friend that even though right now it looks like your friend is denying Jesus, that his or her faith will not fail. And they'll return and strengthen their brothers and sisters, maybe even you, in the time ahead. I'd rather say this. Eh, he's kind of ignoring Jesus right now. Eh, she's giving God the Heisman at the moment. No, stay right out there. Stiff arm. Which kind of acknowledges that God still undoubtedly is at work in their lives. The last thing that the Apostle Peter refers to that causes him to praise is the coming salvation. The coming salvation. Now, just so you know, salvation in the Scriptures actually has a past, present, and a future meaning. Like there really is something too. Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago. I accepted Jesus 40 years ago. What, I mean, there is something to that. Joshua began his journey following Jesus at that funeral service. That's an important time for him. God was working on him even before that. So there is a past kind of an idea about salvation, that Jesus has accomplished it, that it's secure. The Scripture probably has more to say about what is happening at the present time. That as you're being shielded by God's power, like you're doing things that are in line with the kind of people who are saved by God. You are being who you are as you live out your life. But I want to say that is also a future aspect of our salvation. Now, I'm not talking about heaven right now. I'm talking about the completing of your salvation. There is a last time that you will be delivered. I'm not looking forward to this. But the scriptures say there'll come a great judgment at some point in the future where every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived will stand before the throne of the judge and every thought you had, every word you uttered, every action or inaction will be judged by the Holy Most High. I am not looking forward to that. I can just imagine the devil there in the courtroom, in the great judgment, on the left, as the prosecuting attorney saying to the judge, do you have any idea what a hypocrite Mike Sayers was? Yeah, he preached to people, but you should... Just take a look at the videotape of his life. I have footage. And the things he would pull out, I mean, you do not know how bad of a person I am. And the devil will pull it all out on Judgment Day, perhaps. I don't know how this thing is actually going to come down. I'm just... Imagining at the moment. And at that point, I am looking forward to Jesus as my defending eternity saying, 
that penalty has been paid in full. I died for this man. Every wrong thing he said, thought, or did, and the right things he didn't do, I suffered and died for. The case has been closed. And that will be my final salvation. I'm looking forward to that. Not to the trial itself. I'm looking forward to after the trial and the party thereafter. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, Romans 5 says. Talking about the future salvation. We're doing communion tonight. And communion is definitely a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. But I want you to think about communion tonight not just as a testimony to what Christ has done on the cross, but to what he will do at the final judgment on our behalf. Let's praise him for this coming salvation. But let's also praise him for his fantastic mercy. Let's praise him for our new birth. Let's praise him for a living hope. Let's praise him for our inheritance in heaven. And let's praise him for shielding us in the journey along the way. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for what you have done. Jesus. Just amazing. Holy Spirit, bind us together with God and with each other. And thanks for six more reasons to praise your name. Amen.